Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Joyce Maynard. Her latest book is The Best of Us, a memoir. She's the author of nine works of fiction and four books of nonfiction. Two movies were made from her works, To Die For and Labor Day, which we will talk about. But before we go into that, let's talk a little about The Best of Us, and then we'll talk about your career. This is the story of your marriage. I was 58, uh, second time around, having been single for 25 years, Jim about the same. We met on a Match.com date. Had been wandering wandering around in the woods for a very long time when we found each other. And it's the story of a short, happy marriage, cut short by a diagnosis of just about the most brutal form of cancer. You can, you can have pancreatic cancer. But I never regard The Best of Us as a, as a cancer memoir. It's a love story, and it's the book about my discovery of what it meant to be married, which I didn't know until I was 60 years old. You had been married, but this was completely different. Completely different. I was married to the father of my three children and then on my own for many years. And I really didn't want to get married again, which is a story I tell in The Best of Us. I saw no particular reason. I loved Jim, but I was very fearful of marriage and even just the word and speaking of husband and wife, that was an uncomfortable experience for me. And for me, actually, the... The moment of or the gradual recognition of what it meant to be part of a couple occurred when I recognized that I was at risk of losing my partner and did lose my partner a year and a half ago. But you have no regrets at all about everything that changed you. No, no. Everything brought me to where I am here. I would have given a whole lot to have it happen otherwise, but I wouldn't have missed that marriage or that experience, including the hard part, and it was brutal. I say at one point in the book that if only we could learn the lessons of cancer without cancer. I'd be a real fool if I went through all of that and and learned nothing from it. The book ends, we're not giving anything away, of course, with your sitting down to write the book that we're reading here. Which I began to write the night Jim died, actually. But you were also at the same time on Facebook describing everything that happened. So on some sense, you had a diary of sorts you could go back to to get some of the material? Oh, no. I, I Actually, I've never, I've never much believed in kind of pasting in emails and Facebook entries. It's a very different form. The final book, I think, contains almost nothing of my writings over the course of Jim's illness, with the exception of a, um, a Bob Dylan concert at the Greek Theater that we went to, as it turned out, just five days before he died. It was the last time Jim went out in the world, and he really wanted 
to take me to see Bob Dylan at the Greek Theater, and we went. He might well have died at that concert that night. Were you able to use those Facebook things as at least notes? I didn't need notes. It was pretty much seared into my mind. I wrote on Facebook during that period really because I have written all my life. I've basically been writing since I was 10 years old and writing for publications since I was 14. And that represented the only time in my entire life that I wasn't writing anything for publication. But it was a way of connecting to readers who have been a very important part of my life, all my life. And I had this sense of a a family, a community standing by. It was it was a it was a comforting thing. And when I went on the book tour for this book, wherever I went, there were readers who had followed our journey on Facebook. Well, I know for me, since my mom passed away from cancer and I have several friends who died of different kinds of cancer, luckily not pancreatic, which is what Jim died from, there's certain similarities that we all face and feel when dealing with a loved one who has cancer. Part of the book, to me, was about what it's like to be there. And I think because of that, those of us of a certain age can't escape having had similar issues. You know, we, we live in a culture that's got a pretty high level of denial about death. And of course, we're all going to do it. And we're all going to go there. And if we live a life of any duration, we'll lose people that we love along the way. I have to say that that our approach to what was just about, you know, a, an inescapably terminal diagnosis was never to surrender to it. It was very important for for Jim and for me and I really took my cues from him to fight it and we did. Uh, it's part of the the story I tell. I think even if there's was a shred of hope, he was going to go towards that. We were told the day he got the diagnosis that there was basically only one way to survive pancreatic cancer. A pretty brutal surgery that basically reconfigures every organ in your abdomen and digestive system. And that he probably wouldn't qualify for it. And that even if you get it, you probably still die. But all we heard was that was the hope. And we we, we fought for that, and he did ultimately undergo that surgery. It's a surgery about which I have pretty strong reservations now. I don't think I'd choose it for myself. But it's not for the person beside the one with the illness to dictate how he or she should face that moment. And for Jim, he was, I think I describe at one point, he was like some soldier in World War One, you know, just marching straight towards gunfire, but preferring to march. That was, that was his way. He lived for what, a year and a half after the diagnosis? 19 months. 19 months. How long would he have survived uh, if there had been I mean, what is the average? Well, there are so many factors, of course, but that's a very good question, Richard. He would have lived a shorter time and probably a much less painful one, except that he would have known that he absolutely was going to die. People who opt not to have this procedure might get six, eight months of reasonable living. Reasonable living if there can be such a thing while you know that there's a sword over your head. I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think it was very much colored by the fact that we had so recently found each other after such a long period of not. He said at one point, um, you know, if I can get five more years 
it's worth it for me. I have a friend who uh, had liver cancer, and he went to Kaiser at the age of 70, and the doctor there said, you have two years, maybe a year of health, and that's it, and there's nothing we can do. And he went to UCSF. He wound up living to the age of 79. Mm -hmm. So he got basically eight more years of health Mm -hmm. by not listening to that. So you don't know. Well, sometimes you do. But I didn't really want this story to be ultimately about medicine, although certainly it's set against the backdrop of two people who were navigating a world that they were, you know, your your life depends on these decisions that you are ill-equipped to make. We were both professional people. We'd, you know, we were readers. We were good students. But suddenly you're immersed in a, a world of clinical trials and, and, you know, alternative choices that you can only guess at. I lived with a phone on each ear for months, just calling, 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 researching, staying up, you know, into the morning hours trying to decipher papers. You went a lot further than most people would. I was kind of amazed at how much you did learn and what you actually did. I was ferocious. The the idea of doing nothing was unimaginable. So I preferred also, like Jim, to be fighting it. And as close to, you know, a month before he died, I think we were still holding on to this little glimmer. We'll find something. Well, the two of you are are people who go out and do. Yes. I mean, far more than most people I know. Jim climbed a mountain in Chile, a 14,000-foot peak with seven rounds of chemotherapy in him. Yep. And when I read about your own life, you you spent your life doing at every single moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, sometimes doing more than I should have, yes, but <laughs> seldom less. I think that that makes it more obvious that you would spend that much time climbing this other mountain. I yes. Mean. And, you know, for us, it was a shared endeavor. It's not the way that you want to form a deeper and more intimate connection, but surely we did that. We went to a place during those 19 months that... I would like to think if we had had 25 years, we would have gotten to. But certainly it was the fast track to going there. It's an extraordinarily intimate experience going through dying with somebody that you love. I felt privileged that he allowed me to accompany him as he did. I, You know, we'd only start to finish. We were together four and a half years. But he said near the end of his life... Um, friend came to visit him. I think it was about, it was probably the last day he could speak, about three days before he died. And she asked him how he was doing. And he said, you know, I'm okay. He said, I have been known, which I would say for myself as well, took place over the course of those 19 months. And I can't think of a thing I would want more than that, to be known for all my flaws and still loved. (laughs) There's There's a feat. The writing of the book itself, there is a little afterward, which was written after the book was written. You said in that that one of the reasons you were into writing the book was that you were able to be with him a little bit longer by writing the book. Yes. You, it's what memoir does, is it keeps a story alive, doesn't it? And the characters in it. At the end, when you finish writing a book, 
that includes both the good and the bad, was there some kind of therapeutic release for you? Of course there was. But I have to swiftly add, uh, you shouldn't have to pay 20 bucks for my catharsis. <laughs> so it had better accomplish more than just that. If, if all it was was therapy, I'd, I'd keep it for the pages of a journal. But surely, yes, I brought an experience to life, I hope, I think I did, uh, that would also allow other people to go on this journey. And, and I think it's a worthwhile one to experience. And best of all, if you can experience it in the pages of your book, of a book and not in your own life. The hard part for me, actually, was finishing it, Richard. I didn't want to end this book. It followed the, the trajectory of our meeting and falling in love and marrying. And probably 150 pages before we even get to the diagnosis. I never think of it as a book just about the mm -hmm. cancer, you know. And actually, there's no way to talk about two people in their 50s getting together without looking at what they've been doing for the first five decades of their lives either, or the last three anyway. So, so it, it very much begins with who we were at that point. And that includes the story of your adoption of two Ethiopian girls it and, does. and uh, choosing to give a them very, up. A very hard story that I, I'm not reluctant to speak of, I, but I'll never speak of it in a sound bite because it's a complicated story. But yes, when I was 55 years old, having raised and launched into the world three children, three very well-loved children who were long gone and off living their lives as, as children should, I, I made the decision as a single person, not a of any great wealth to adopt two older children who had lost their mother to AIDS from Ethiopia. And uh, I did it with the best intentions. Uh, you could call me idealistic or ignorant or perhaps arrogant. And I, I really supposed at that, at that moment in my life, that, that phase of my life, that I, I could give any child whatever it was she needed. And I, I could love and be loved by a child of mine. I did not appreciate the the depth of damage and loss that confronted us when I brought the girls home. And I recognized pretty swiftly that I was not the mother they needed. And they found the right one, though. I found the, yes. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the end. I believe I did. Uh, there's no website you go to for this. But uh, after 14 months of struggling really hard and, and, and believing it was absolutely unacceptable to give up, I came to the conclusion that the most loving thing I could do for them, and I thought this was going to be the hardest thing that, ever, that I ever faced, it turns out it wasn't, was to find them the right family, a good family, a family that included a father and other children. But I will swiftly acknowledge it was more than that, too, that I, I recognized my limitations. I wasn't strong enough to endlessly give out everything I had and not get back in a way that I think it's now unrealistic to suppose a child at that stage can give back. It was a, uh, an experience that left me absolutely devastated, of course, and, and, and in, that caused me to, to question who I was. And, and this was an important story to include in the memoir of Jim and me because the woman who went on that Match.com date and sat across from him at that restaurant in Marin County that night was just six months out from having said goodbye to two, to two girls but, to whom she had promised you know, she would be the mother forever. But it also, on some level 
when you've been brought that low and when you're feeling that, you're also open to things perhaps you wouldn't have been open to and more vulnerable in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have been more vulnerable. I was humbled, for sure. I used to believe I could do anything. I was humbled by that experience. But it also left me doubting my ability to love well enough. Which is interesting because then you did. I did. When you sat down to write The Best of Us, Joyce Maynard, did you even consider whether it would be published or did you know it would be? I'm pretty clear that my work will be published. I have other problems in life, but I felt very strongly that this was a story that people would want to hear, that they would love this story, actually. It's a hopeful story in many ways. The title of the book in in the French edition, I'll say it in French, but I'll translate it, is completely different, and it comes from something that Jim said about six weeks before he died. The title is Un jour tu raconteras cette histoire. Jim did not speak French. What he said was, one day you will tell this story. Although he was himself a very private person, unlike me, he knew that I would tell the story. We both sure hoped it would have a different ending. But I knew that I would tell it. It's what I do. It's what I've done all my life. The only thing I could do the night he died, I woke up in the middle of the night next to him, and I realized he had taken his last breath, and and I just lay there for about an hour, and then I went downstairs, and I did this thing that would sound bizarre to some people. I I made coffee, and I began to write. And that's the first page of the book. I'd like to talk a little about your career. You always were a writer. Uh, At Home in the World is the story of a 10-month, was it? About a year. About a year uh, relationship living with J.D. Salinger. I have to amend that. The book is not actually... Okay. That story. That story is included in the book, and it's certainly a very important part of the book. But there's no way to tell a story like that without its context. Just like this one. Before and after. Sometimes people say it's the book about Salinger, and of course I have no business writing a book about Salinger, and I didn't write a book about Salinger. I wrote a book about me, and the particular part of my story that I wanted to explore was going from being this girl who took her sense of herself and her identity from how other people viewed her. Uh, And I I was so eager to please, as so many young girls are, particularly a young girl from an alcoholic family, and who I became by the end. The book ends at the age of 44, which is how old I was when I finished writing it. I'm a girl who goes back to knock on the door of the man who had sent me away 25 years earlier with two $50 bills in my hand and, the, and a pretty brutal assessment of who I was as a human being. I no longer felt a need for his approval. Telling that story, I most certainly did not get the approval of critics. Yeah. After he died, the question was, what actually still exists? What did he write? Supposedly, there's a World War II memoir. It's not clear. During that time or when he talked about it, What was the sense of what he had? I'm going to say this very firmly. Okay. I am not the biographer of Salinger. I'm actually not concerned with the oeuvre of J.D. Salinger, and that's not what my—I'm not equipped to talk about that, and actually I have my own substantial experience to talk about. What I know is that J.D. Salinger, and I absolutely know this, wrote letters to teenage girls— 
I actually am somewhat offended. I'm, I'm not offended by you personally in asking that question, but the endless fascination with the great secret work locked up somewhere in a safe. And as a writer myself I, of, of many years, who's actually published a lot more books, I will say it, it's been my experience that when I've written something good, I wanted people to see it. I do not believe there is some masterpiece in some safe somewhere, although there was a lot of fascination with this. I absolutely know, because I've seen them and I've heard from the women who, who have them in their possession, that there were endless letters to girls just barely of age, but of age, 18 years old, some of them written while I was actually living with him and believing that I was the one true love of his life, that I would be there forever which is what I believed as an 18-year-old girl. There is an element here, which is that when the Me Too movement came on, you wrote an essay in Bustle.com, and that essay changes, hopefully changes, how people did view what was going on. Well, I've been saying this for a long time. Not too many people listened, but it's old news that Salinger wrote me these letters, at Home in the World was published in 1998. And you could not find a literary critic or a literary figure. There were a couple. Joyce Carol Oates was one, actually, who didn't dismiss and condemn not simply my book, but me very personally. Maureen Dowd in the New York Times called oh, me a predator. Awful. The Washington Post called At Home in the World the worst book ever published. And the critic for Time magazine said, you know, the one good thing about At Home in the World is now that Joyce Maynard has told the one story she has of any value, we will never have to hear from her again. This was 1998, and I, I wish I could say that the tide had entirely turned. I can't. I can't say that. We have a, you know, a group of movie stars who are coming forward and, you know, celebrated as they should be for their courage in speaking. But in the world of the non-glamorous, you know, the, the, the secretaries in offices and the, the workers in stores and the women in factories whose job depends on their not speaking up about a boss, or in my case, a writer who dares to tell a story of what happened in her life, that's all, story I lived, there has not been necessarily a, an overwhelming reappraisal. That's the part that, as I was talking to a friend about The Best of Us, we talked about the earlier thing, and I kept saying, you know, she was 18 years old, and he was in his 50s, and the power differential was very, very strong, and yet she was blamed. Yep. It was uh, said many times, I should have kept my big mouth shut. The responses that I read about the book it's appalling 20 years later to know that that was the response. Well, the more troubling thing is that it's still sometimes the response. If you go on Amazon and you read what people have to say about at home in the world, you know, I think we sort of live in a Google culture. So people don't read the book anymore. They read the stuff said about the book. And it's a kind of self-perpetuating thing. So if I live another 50 years... I will always be the girl who slept with Salinger. You know, I accept it. It's trailed me around for a long time, and it certainly is a part of my story. Joyce Maynard, 
Labor Day became a film, and you talk about going to the uh, film festivals and the best of us, and I, I watched the film last week, and what I noticed is that it was sort of a coming-of-age story, a boy talking about his relationship with his parents and about his mother. That could have been a very charming film, but somehow somebody got the idea it was a thriller. I always say the book is always better than the movie. Sure. And that's even true of To Die For, but To Die For was a really good movie. There's a thriller element to Labor Day for sure. It's it's the story of a 13-year-old boy, a son of a, a lonely, troubled single mother in a small town in New Hampshire. She wasn't me, but I was a single mother in a small town in New Hampshire for many years, who witnesses over the course of a long, hot Labor Day weekend the love affair between his mother and a convict on the run played, as you know, in the movie by Josh Brolin. So there is this element of the hunt for the man as the two of them are falling in love and the boy is feeling torn. He's drawn to this this man, but he's also terrified of losing his mother. And it's really a book about adolescent sexuality in many ways. It's He's witnessing this very hot relationship. Right, which is a completely <clears throat> different vibe yes, from the film. You could have taken those same scenes, put them together and had a completely different movie. That's true. But you see, for the two hours that you invested in watching that movie, another hour and a half, you probably could have read Labor Day. You taught James Rowland how to make I that pie? I did. I did. It was very important to me. There's a scene in the movie where the convict, he's holed up with Kate Winslet, and we still don't quite know what to think of him. He's, you know, he's supposedly a murderer, and he's holed up in their house, and he's tied her up. He teaches her son how to make a pie. I'm quite a fine pie maker myself. We're speaking about crust. That's the crucial element of a good pie. And I, I said to Jason Reitman, the director, that it was really important to me that the pie looked like the kind of pie that would be made by a convict on the run, not some Hollywood pie, not some Martha Stewart pie. And actually, my pie looks like a pie made by a convict on the run. Nobody complains about how it tastes, but it, it, it looks like a funky pie. So I flew to the set, and I taught Josh Brolin how to make the pie, and he did a fine job. And the scene is a very sensuous, well, you tell me, but I think it's a sexy pie scene. <laughs> Might a, be the sexiest, the all-time sexiest pie scene. In it's a, a very long scene. We learn how to make a pie. You do, you do, and and one day that might come in handy, Richard. <laughs> Perhaps when Best of Us opens after her had it. just uh, come out, oh, I had believe. It. Oh, mm. so you talked a little about that at the very mm. beginning of the book. Uh -huh. You had another book you were you were working on during the relationship, the early yes. part of the relationship, yes. and that was and I uh, stopped uh, it under entirely. the influence. And that book is about alcoholism. It's not really about alcoholism, well, but there's a character who of a woman who has lost custody of her child because of uh, an arrest for drunk driving. And that piece of the story, it's not the central piece. It's actually that one is a thriller, actually. But that really does come from. Some of my own experience as the daughter in an alcoholic family and a person for whom drinking and wine in particular has always been a loaded subject, I saw a lot of myself in that character. I was, I was for many years a single parent who found comfort at 5 p.m. in opening a bottle of Cabernet, and I used that. I, I was never arrested for drunk driving, and I never lost custody of a child. But I, I think there is this sort of dirty little secret of 
the mom who's going to the soccer games and packing the lunches and, you know, earning the living and doing all the things, but for whom wine represents comfort and escape and possibly numbing out. And I, I know about that one. When I was reading about the book, and comparing it to the issues you were dealing with with wine in The Best of Us, finally deciding at one point, I can't do it anymore. Yep. During the 19 months of Jim's illness, it was my little comfort and escape sometimes at the end of a very, what were almost always long, hard days. I gave it up for a while. I drink now with an awareness of how careful I have to be. I've got the genetics, I know it, and I have the family history. When you have an awareness of that, you recognize how wherever you go, how, especially if you're living in Northern California, you know, that wine is the go-to. You know, you get some bad news, pour a glass of wine. The beauty parlor that I go to for my haircut, first thing they do when you sit down in the chair is ask, do you want red wine or white wine? I turn it down now, but but um, it's it's everywhere. I, I when I moved to California from New Hampshire, I was a babe in the woods. You know, all you said was red or white. But now, you know, I'm in Northern California, and that, that wouldn't go across very well. Joyce Maynard, you teach personal storytelling at a workshop down at your place in Guatemala. For people who are thinking about writing memoir, personal storytelling. Is there any key that unlocks a door that you found that you're trying to tell other people how to find or well, guide them? Oh gosh, I mean, I you know I spend eight days with those writers, so I have a whole lot to say, um, and I'm a big believer in craft. I'm not a sort of vomit on the page, spill your guts, have your catharsis teacher of writing. But at the end of the day, I think the biggest challenge for most people facing the task of writing memoir is giving themselves permission to tell the truth, being authentic. And our terrible fear of hurting people, the sense, especially for women, of the obligation to protect. I mean, I, I lived with that one for 25 years. I, it was 25 years before I felt I could speak of what had happened with Salinger. The view that some people still subscribe to that I had no right to tell that story I subscribe to that one myself, so I understand it. You know, he's so much more important than I. I'll hold my tongue. So a big piece of what I do when I teach, and I teach, I actually just finished recording an all-day online class that I'm pretty proud of. I did it Monday of this this week on Creative Live, so it's available on online, which is seven hours of me teaching the art of personal narrative and storytelling and memoir. I'll talk about, you know, diagramming sentences and point of entry and landing place and the story arc. But in the end, all of those tools mean nothing if they're not in the service of real truth-telling, unblinking honesty. And that's a very scary thing to do. Nobody knows much better than I the cost of doing it because I've been pretty severely pilloried myself, but I would never, I would never, I have, I have no regret about publishing at home in the world. I, I get to live my life as an honest person. In terms of that, in writing a book like The Best of Us, and knowing that all of these people in your life are going to, to be in the book, how do you get past that moment of fear, realizing that you could say something that will 
piss off one of your kids well, or one of his, more likely. Well, you might notice in The Best of Us, I said almost nothing about Jim's children. But in the case of my children, they, they know me very well, okay. and they've lived with me a long time. They, no doubt, there were moments that were when they would have preferred if their mother was a a doctor or a lawyer or a bricklayer. But I hope that part of the lesson of having me for a mother was giving them similar permission, modeling the, you know, the the right that all of us possess to to, to tell our truth, which would could include an uncomfortable truth for me from them. I don't ever write in a spirit of revenge or vindictiveness. That has a smell to it and it's not a good one. I try to locate compassion for every character, and that would include Salinger, that would include my ex-husband, include my parents, people I loved, but who certainly, you know, if, if you read at home in the world, you can argue that they they did some pretty misguided things. My mother sewed the little alphabet print dress that I wore um, for my first visit with Salinger. It's like a child's dress. I loved my mother, but I... I loved her as a flawed human being, and I am one myself. So I think it's a paralyzing thing as you write your story to, to allow the specters of all the people in your life to hover over your shoulder saying, no, 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 you don't get to do that. We've paid, most of us, a pretty high price for our life on this planet. There are so many freedoms that we don't have, you know, to quit our job, fly to Bali, but, you know, you should get the freedom to tell the truth of your life. And if you can't publish it, it's still worth putting it down on paper somewhere and knowing you have spoken your truth. When you're writing a memoir, on some level, obviously it's different from writing fiction, Mm -hmm. but on some level there are certain areas where they overlap in terms of wanting to find ways to ensure that the reader keeps reading, for example. Mm-hmm. When you're writing a thriller and you're constructing, aside from the fact that one is fiction and one is memoir, is that process that different? Surprisingly not. It's always about good storytelling. You know, I'm scrupulously honest when I'm writing memoir, but, but to me there is little more riveting than the truth if a person is really prepared to tell it, to go to the hard parts, not step around the uncomfortable. You you know, The Best of Us is not the story of my invariably heroic uh, Florence Nightingale behavior with Jim. I I adored Jim, but it's also the story of my frustration sometimes, my impatience, my despair, and my, and my, sometimes, you know, my, my, self-centeredness you know what happened to my life I say at one point you know and I think those are those are human emotions that we we are ashamed of but when we name them they give other people permission to name theirs as well Well, when you're writing a book like Labor Day or After Her and you're going back and working on it in multiple drafts is a part of you going if this is a memoir would it be real I mean, does that kind of thought thing cross your pat- mind at all? Uh, you're, you're speaking of my novels? Yeah. Oh, hmm, interesting question. Let me think about that. Um, I think part of the power of memoir is knowing that it happened, okay. knowing that it happened. Um, and, you know, sometimes people will say to me in a writing class, oh, you know, this, I, I don't want to 
upset my grandmother or whoever, so maybe I could just change it into fiction. And much is forfeited by changing real-life experience into fiction. I didn't really have that option with At Home in the World. How could I write this novel about an 18-year-old girl, you know, having... Uh, love affair is actually an odd word to use for what transpired with Salinger, but I'll say love affair, um, with a 53-year-old very famous writer. It was, you know, it was known that I had left college to be with him. You know, it was kind of, it, it, it would have been very obvious who, who I was talking about and just sort of coy to not name it. But my novels, once you get the license to invent, then there's a different kind of challenge, which is then you have the whole world of possibilities to choose from, and you better darn well choose, you know, the best. Well, from what what I've seen when I read a book like Best of Us, which is, for me at least, not the kind of book that's going to want to make me turn pages, and then I do turn pages, I'm thinking... You know, some of the craft of creating thriller, page-turning thriller, has to find its way on at least an unconscious level For sure. into the writing of memoir. I, I've been doing this quite a while. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think – I often think that I would have really loved to be a filmmaker. I love the movies, and they're a very strong influence on me. But, in fact, when I write a book, I sort of am a filmmaker. I'm making a little movie that I that is going to play in your head and I'm very conscious of the camera work, the lighting, the editing, when I zoom in, when I cut. And you know, I'll tell you, I've been writing for my living. I've been writing to keep a roof over my children's head for 40 years and it's a different way of approaching it. I didn't sit around and wait for the muse. I knew that if if people didn't turn those pages, they didn't get to go to college or eat uh, or, you know, get a bicycle. So I was strongly motivated. I didn't sit around thinking, you know, how am I going to make art? I said, how am I going to keep a reader from the thing that's always easier to do now in particular with the Internet? You know, when I started writing, there were just three TV channels, and that was it. And, you know, you could be on the cover of the New York Times Magazine section, and everybody knew about it. Now there's so much. I always know that you have the option to close the book, and it is my own personal challenge to keep you turning those pages. I I love it when I get a letter that somebody said, oh, you kept me up all night reading The Best of Us. You know, you wouldn't think that that would be a page-turner. But, yeah, I want every book I write to be a page-turner. That brings up the question um, from what you said, Joyce Maynard, brings up the question concerning writer's block. And I've talked to, over the years, writers who have writer's block, and then I've talked to people who have to make their living as a writer, and they say, you know, if there's writer's block, I'm going to write. That on some level, writer's block doesn't exist if you have to do it. Is that true? I'm not one of those people, Richard, who believes that you just get up every morning and no matter what, write 500 words, 5,000 words, whatever. I always, in one way or another, I'm engaged in the process. But I don't believe in premature writing. So sometimes what my writing life looks like, and actually now is one of those times, and it's, it would be a little scary if I hadn't been doing this as long as I have. What my writing life looks like at the moment is thinking. I, I think many people 
don't pay enough attention to that part of the process and write before they know what they have to say or write to fill the page and check the word count, you know, that NaNoWriMo thing that happens every November where, you know, you have to have a certain number of words. You'll get a certain number of words, but will they be good words? I don't know. So I have confidence that if I listen to my heart, if I listen to my, to my gut, the story will come. But sometimes it's pretty uncomfortable waiting for it, and I wait it out. When you sit down to write, and putting aside the memoir, Or which stand up is to different. write, because I'm not a big sit-down type oh, person. Okay, when you stand <laughs> up. When you begin writing, yeah. okay, some people have outlines, some people just wing it, and some people have spent the past four months wandering Lake Merritt or wherever. That's what. That's more like me, or swimming. Yeah, I do a lot of thinking before I write, and I have lots of scribbling. I, I, I'm not a big outliner. I think, you know, a piece of writing that comes from an outline feels like a term paper, but I, I think that, you know, the absolute blank page is just, you know, is, is daunting. So I have a giant whiteboard, giant, filled with scribbles in no particular order. And I, I actually think that I was inspired. My father was a painter. One of my strongest images of him is with a piece of masonite. It wasn't an actual palette. It was just a piece of masonite with all these dollops of different colored paints on it. And he'd have his palette knife and he'd just scoop one up and, you know, put it on the canvas. Or the, it was actually another piece of masonite that he painted on. And a writer, you know, a musician has his sheet music or her sheet music and a, and, and a dancer has the choreography. What does a writer have? You're just, you know, you're flying blind. So I like to picture my palette with all these colors and I can scoop up, oh, there's an interesting little story that I have up on the far right-hand corner of my whiteboard. But I sit with them a long time. And by the time I start to write, then I just take flight. And I usually write pretty fast. It sounds like the process is that you know where you started, you know the end of the road. But no, you're don't not, know the end of the road. Don't know the end of don't the road. Don't know the end of the road. I think that that's part of the excitement for me and part of maybe why I write fast. So, the books that I write, I can't wait to find out how they're going to turn out. And the only way to find out is to write them. Labor Day, Labor Day was the all-time fast one, and but to die for pretty close to it. 12 days. To I write just, Labor Day? I just, I couldn't wait to see how that story was going to turn out. So you didn't know what would happen no, at the end. No, I did not. But what I did know, and this is crucially important, is who the people were. And you and, had the voice of the book. And I had the voice. And, you know, story comes out of character. And a character will do certain things and not do certain things. And so my characters lead me to my story. I don't begin with an interesting plot and then superimpose characters. I don't think that would work very well. I set my characters into motion, and then they lead me, usually. To Die For was loosely inspired by a real murder case in the state of New Hampshire, which is where I lived at the time, Pamela Smart. But I took pains not to research that case after the very, you know, bare bones awareness of what had happened. Where I began was a 15-year-old boy shoots point blank the husband of his beautiful 20-something-year-old high school teacher lover. What would inspire a 15-year-old boy to do such a thing? And, you know, he could be a sociopath, which is not very interesting. But let's suppose he's not. 
I try to, as I say, locate compassion for her character. So what brings him to that point? I didn't know. I couldn't imagine, as the mother of sons, I couldn't imagine my sons doing such a thing. And I, I'd like to think I still can't imagine that. But, but I decided to just bring this boy to life on the page, have him first just see her leg emerging from her car on the first day of school, have him go to a pizza parlor with her with a, you know, when she's the advisor to his club or whatever it was that they where they first got together then suddenly there she's flirting with him and they get drunk and she kisses him and then they have sex and then she says to him you know if my husband wasn't in the way we could do this all the time and now he's a 15 year old boy on drugs basically the drug of having had sex for the first time and suddenly I'm 120 pages into the story and I can write that scene of him taking out the gun. How many drafts? Once the 12 days of, of Labor Day are written, how long does it take you well, to get from that to the final version? The, Labor Day was a gift. Labor Day came out of the ashes of what was left of my career after At Home in the World. And I, it just came to me in the night. If you'd asked me the night before when I put my head on the pillow, what are you writing, I wouldn't have known. And I woke up the next morning and I heard the voice of that boy telling the story about his mother falling in love with the convict. And 12 days later, it was done. And it was very little changed, I really? have to say. It was pretty much, but they don't all go like that, that's for sure. What kind of work did you have to do on Best of Us after it was done? That one I worked on over and over and over. But I think I read it out loud. I, I think it was partly that I couldn't bear to be done with that story. It was my book for Jim. I just wanted it to be perfect in every way I could think of. And when I was done writing it, then I wanted to make a playlist to put up on Spotify, and then I wanted to make a little video, and I did that. I just If I could have performed a, a, an interpretive dance, I would have done that too. <laughs> I just, I, it was a very hard story to let go of. And then I, and then I took it all around America, so a lot of it on my own hook, just going to every, every city that would have me. The hard part was actually when I came home. And, and I was done. And I had to say, all right, now I put that book on the shelf. Now I have to move on. And um, that, was, that was the moment. Joyce Maynard, have you thought about writing screenplays? I am writing one now, I'm so happy to say. I've always thought about it. And it's kind of catch-22. I wanted to write the screenplay for To Die For. I, a, a very fine one was written by Buck Henry, so I'm not complaining. And I certainly wanted to write the screenplay for Labor Day, and I think I would have written a really good one. I am writing the screenplay for Under the Influence, which is my most recent novel. So, yes, <laughs> happy that you asked. <laughs> and finally. And I'm going to write in a role for myself because that was my original aspiration. Well, you did play the lawyer in I uh, did. To Die You've for. done your homework, yes. I even I have a few lines in To Die For. Yeah. Finally, this um, next novel that you're wandering around thinking about it. How close are you to starting to actually write oh, it? Oh, that's such a painful question. I have no idea. I have started about five novels that I've gotten maybe 50 pages, maybe 100 pages into, and thrown it all away. Not because it wasn't well-written. It was, it was written fine. I want to keep growing, you know. I don't want to keep doing the same thing. So they weren't right. So I have no clue. I, I better come up with something soon because I live in the Bay Area and I have a mortgage. But ultimately, you can't rush it. So I am just holding the line here and saying it will come when it's ready to come. I'm taking a rather 
Zen approach to this one and trusting that I've done this, write a book thing 17 times, so the book will come. And the first thing that happens is you get the voice? The first thing that happens is a character, yeah. The voice? Yeah, yep, the voice. And you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Olinsky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>